0: Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word podcast dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and I'm here to tell you exactly what I think of some of the latest movies out right now. For today's show, I have three new movies to review for you. Two of them are brand new, having been released in theaters and or on streaming on October 22nd, 2021. The other one was released on October 15th, 2021, but I did not get to watch it until this week. So I'm going to do a little bit of catch up, but first and foremost, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Dune. This is the long awaited film adaptation, although not the first film adaptation, of the celebrated 1965 science fiction novel by Frank Herbert and Frank Herbert in his life up until his death in 1986 wrote Dune as well as five cha- uh, five sequels to Dune. So very much like J.R.R. Tolkien, Frank Herbert created a much celebrated extended universe in novel form. He did live long enough to see David Lynch make a film adaptation out of his novel. But considering how critics understandably panned that movie, I don't believe that Frank Herbert himself um, liked the the movie either. But the good news is that this 2021 film adaptation of Dune is a world's better no pun intended, than David Lynch even thought of making his first film. And of course, nobody goes out, nobody sets out to make a bad movie, but it seemed like David Lynch sort of cut corners and pulled punches in his film adaptation of Dune. But that's just amongst the film adaptations that we've seen. Allegedly, there is a five-hour cut of Dune, directed by David Lynch, that has not been released yet, despite popular demand. But the the film cut that we saw in theaters and on DVD, even the more extended cut that was directed by the pseudonym Alan Smithy, uh, still did not satisfy fans of the best-selling 1965 novel that still is at least one of the best-selling science fiction novels to date, if not the best-selling science fiction novel. So the people who have read the novel (laughs) definitely have their standards that are pretty high, but I think that this film, Dune, which is directed by Denis Villeneuve, which is titled on screen as Dune Part One, so you know there's going to be a sequel, is going to satisfy both... Fans of the novel, I suppose, and if it doesn't do that, it will at least satisfy people who are not quite as familiar with the Frank Herbert novel. So one of the challenges for me in reviewing this film is giving you a plot synopsis of Dune in and of itself. That's going to be very difficult for me because there are so many subplots and themes that cannot be summarized in just one sentence, or even a couple of sentences. But let me just say that when it comes to Dune, well, it's a story about a young man who is pampered, yes, but inexperienced, but has his heart in the right place. And he is a man by the name of Paul. He's a young man who in this film is played by Timothy Chalamet, and he's part of the kingdom of Uh, Atreides. And let me just give you a little bit more of a synopsis. He is the son of a noble family who is entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy. And in short, this element is known as the Spice. And the Spice is a lot of things to a lot of creatures in the galaxy. It is a hallucinogen, it is a source of health and prosperity, and it is also a currency. And if that's confusing to you, then you obviously have not either read the book or seen the movie. But it takes place in the distant future, in the, in the Earth year of 10,000, but it takes place very much like Star Wars in a galaxy far, far away. And the young Paul Atreides, who in this movie is played by Timothy Chalamet, as I said, is part of a family who accepts the stewardship of the planet Arrakis. And while the planet is an inhospitable and sparsely populated desert wasteland, it is the only source of melange, or the spice, which is a drug that extends life and enhances mental abilities. So... It's also necessary, apparently, for space navigation. And there is another species of life who is not native to the planet of Arrakis, but inhabits the planet of Arrakis to take control of the spice. And because they take control of the spice, they become filthy rich, and they are obviously the antagonists of the novel. So what does Paul Atreides have to do with the gathering of the spice? Well, he is gifted, although inexperienced, with um, clairvoyance, in that he has a telepathic connection to the natives of Iraq, as including a pretty young woman by the name of Chani, who in this movie is played by Zendaya, turning in another understated, but very impressive performance in this film. And she also is very iconic to the film itself. And Zendaya is one of those actresses I didn't quite know when she first came on the scene. I know she was on some Disney Channel show, and I was unimpressed with her when I saw her in the movie Spider-Man Far From Home. But she is going to be in the next... uh, MCU Spider-Man film, So hopefully she is better in that, but she's been impressing me the more I've seen her, but the other, uh, supporting performances in the, this adaptation of Dune include Rebecca Ferguson, who plays Paul's mother, Lady Jessica Atreides, his father, Duke Leto Atreides, who's played by Oscar Isaac. A soldier of the Atreides kingdom by the name of Duncan Idaho, who's played by Jason Moma. There's also another soldier, Gurney Halleck, who's played by Josh Brolin. There's another native to the Arrakis people whose name is Stilgar, and he's played by Javier Bardem in a nearly unrecognizable performance. There's also an ally to the Atreides family whose name is Dr. Liet Kynes, who's played by Sharon Duncan Brewster, who's a very uh, talented actress who I've seen in a couple of other things. There are, I, I could go on about the number of actors in the film, but what really sells this film is not only the acting, which is superb, and not only the special effects, particularly of the spacecraft and also the sand dune uh, worms that feast on anyone who has rhythm. Again, if you don't know the novel, you probably don't know what I'm talking about. But also the fact that it took a very popular but complex novel with a lot of intricacies, a lot of themes, and a lot of stories that might seem confusing to people who are novices to science fiction literature. And Denis Villeneuve fortunately put this all together and created a very coherent and focused story. Of course, he didn't do it just by himself. He did contribute to the screenplay, but it was also he also received assistance from John Spottis and Eric Roth, and of course, Frank Herbert wrote the novel upon which this movie is based. And I loved it. There wasn't a moment where my attention was not focused entirely on the film. And that says a lot considering that I saw this on HBO Max because I didn't have time to see this in theaters. And for those people who think this movie is unfinished, you're partly right. I mean, it is a very well-polished and superb film both to look at and to watch, But it's also part one of what is probably going to be a several part series. It's not just going to be a part two, although Denis Villeneuve has signed on to direct part two, but there's probably going to be a couple of more parts. Are they going to adapt all the sequels that Frank Herbert wrote, not to mention the ones that have been written since Frank Herbert's passing in 1986? Probably not, but... This version of Dune is a really good start. Again, it has been attempted several times. Alejandro Jodorowsky had a proposal to create a 12-14 to hour movie epic of this film back in the 70s, back when movies were supreme and television series weren't quite as advanced or as complex as they are now. But he ultimately didn't get it picked up. But he had a great vision that I think... Denis Villeneuve did adapt to a certain extent. There were ideas of Alejandro Hodorowski that Frank Herbert brought into this, and who could blame him because Alejandro Hodorowski, as detailed in the documentary Hodorowski's Dune, had some monumentally great ideas. But uh, you can also see some really good vision that Denis Villeneuve did here, which not only paid tribute to the original Frank Herbert novel, but also had some good ideas uh, in and of themselves. And it's very similar to when Denis Villeneuve four years ago directed the sequel to Blade Runner, Blade Runner 2049. It not only served as a, a fitting tribute to the original Blade Runner directed by Ridley Scott, but it also had some unique characteristics to it. In terms of acting, set design, cinematography, lighting, you name it. So Dune could have been a major disappointment. And I came into this film expecting that it would be. It does have a lot of things in common, at least on the surface, with David Lynch's failed version. It does have an all-star cast, just like David Lynch's did. It does have some ambitious special effects just like David Lynch's did. But I think what it has that David Lynch's version lacked is focus. It focuses on character development and story a lot more than the David Lynch version most of us or some of us have seen have. And it goes without saying that this version of Dune directed by Denis Villeneuve was well worth the wait well worth the budget and well worth the vision, which is why it gets my rating of a knockout. It is truly a sight to behold. It has a very tough act to follow, not only with the other film and TV adaptations of Dune, what few there are, but also with other celebrated science fiction franchises that have already made it to the big and small screen, including, but not limited to Star Trek, Star Wars, Alien, uh, The Fifth Element, and I I could keep going about the films and TV shows that have been influenced, at least in part, by Frank Herbert's vision, but what I'm saying here is that Dune is well worth the watch, and I honestly cannot wait for part two whenever that comes out. words on film the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures i am your host and movie critic dan burke Uh, the next film i'm going to be reviewing for you is one that was released on october 22nd 2021 it is an animated science fiction comedy called ron's gone wrong which is an original idea that was written by peter bainham and sarah smith And Sarah Smith co-directed this film with Jean-Philippe Vine and Octavio Rodriguez. It is based on an original concept, but it is actually uh, somewhat of an original film, uh, which I enjoyed to a certain extent, although I did find some parallels between this movie and other films that have come before it, such as Short Circuit, *Wally*, and some others, but I enjoyed it for what it was. And this film it has been released by 20th century studios, which means that uh, Disney vicariously released this film. And it is the first film from Locksmith Animation. And this is the company's first animated film to be released since the closure of blue sky studios on April 10th, 2021. I don't exactly know why Blue Sky Studios closed. It is a subsidiary of 20th Century Fox. It was actually around for 34 years, if you can believe it. And it was shut down for a while because of the COVID-19 pandemic, understandably. I don't know exactly why it was... Oh, actually, uh, I have the news right here. Uh, Disney shut it down, uh, citing the economic impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on its business operations. But while Blue Sky Studios was around, it did release the Ice Age movies, the Rio films, and some decent animated films like Horton Hears a Who and the uh, Peanuts movie. Horton Hears a Who I thought was well animated, but I didn't think it was uh, all that great. But I did enjoy the Peanuts film. But Ron's Gone Wrong is a pretty good start for locksmith animation. And again, you can compare this movie to such animated, or rather, science fiction films as, as I said, Short Circuit is one that particularly comes to mind, but I did think it also was a good parody, not only of uh, bots, but also of the social media hold that people have, or rather the hold that social media has on middle school kids. So it takes place in the not-too-distant future, where there's a tech giant by the name of Bubble, which draws a lot of comparisons to Facebook, actually. And that says a lot, considering that Facebook is in a lot of trouble these days. And as it turns out, the person in the film who is the head of uh, the Bubble company is named Mark. Interesting very much like Facebook, but he is an ambitious kid and a bit more charismatic than Mark Zuckerberg. And he's voiced by Justice Smith, and he created the Bebot. And what the Bebot is, is it's a mini robot that probably stands no more than two feet tall. It's sort of dome-shaped, and probably the best uh, comparison I can make to what character it looks like is it looks very much like EVE which was the robotic love interest of Wally e in the fantastic 2008 Disney Pixar film, WALL-E. And this robot not only interacts with you, but it also helps you uh, increase your social media presence. It works as a camera. It works as a projector. It works to create uh, 3D simulations of environments right at your feet. And by the time this film starts, not only is the Bebot introduced, but every child in the middle school that Barney Podowski attends has one, except for Barney Podowski himself. And this movie pr- presents a very colorful. Uh, rather a very candy-coated vision of junior high that is not the hell that junior high actually is. But, you know, for this kid, it presents a a digestible version of junior high that has some semblances of real junior high. But I do have to tell you something. Even though my junior high was hell, um, I do have to say that I'm glad that I went to junior high when I did Before the creation of smartphones, the creation of cell phones would have been handy in a lot of instances, but man, I could not imagine being a kid in junior high right now with the negative influences that social media have. And this movie actually does very poignantly point at some of these influences and and some of the drawbacks that having a, a bot that could easily replace your smartphone could have, how it could be distracting, how it could just present a lot more peer pressure than uh, kids from the mid-aughts and back probably had to deal with when they were in school. But anyway, Barney, um, our main protagonist, who is voiced by Jack Dylan Grazer, gets a bot from his father, who is a budding or a... He's an um, aspiring entrepreneur who's, who's voiced by Ed Helms, and he, he gets a son a B-Bot, but upon activating it, he learns that the B-Bot is defective and glitchy. But not wanting to upset his father, he decides to take it back to the bubble store, to get it fixed. And there are a lot of parallels between this not-too-distant future and the world in which we live today. So Bubble is kind of like uh, Facebook and Apple combined, if you can believe that. But he ends up running into... Uh, rather, the bebot bot begins to fight back from uh, against some bullies that Barney encounters on his way to the Bubble store. But then... Ultimately, the people at the bubble store realize that this B-Bot is not only defective and glitchy, but it also could be dangerous because B-Bots are not supposed to fight back. They're supposed to be basically peaceful. But eventually chaos happens when the B-Bot begins to fight back against the Bubble Corporation, but also he begins to befriend Barney. And also I should note that... um, the B-Bot develops the name of Ron and he's voiced by Zach Galifianakis and he doesn't, and the B-Bot himself, whose name is Ron, does not act as efficiently as other bots that are more properly manufactured, but he does develop a very sweet friendship with Ron. And the the best parts of this movie, I think, are when Ron begins to try to develop a friendship with with Barney, which is more difficult for a glitchy bot like him than it is for other bots that are not glitchy, so to speak. So there are some um, familiar elements to this story. Of course, I think that's one of the 14 plots of films where there's either a robot or some kind of supernatural creature like E.T. that befriends a young boy, and the government finds out about it and is after this alien or robot. And this movie is certainly no exception to that formula. But I did think that the movie Saving Grace was how the film tied the perils and some of the advantages and the drawbacks of the social media world in which we live into this film. I I think that was probably the saving grace. I think the the drawback of this film was the fact that we've seen this kind of plot before and also the way that it resolves itself is a lot like the ending to WALL-E and to at least one of the short-circuit movies, maybe both the short-circuit films. And a couple of other uh, films that I've seen that have uh, done this formula, like Chappie, which was a film that came out about six years ago and came from the filmmaker of District 9. But Ron's Gone Wrong, I thought, was very uh, decently animated, although considering it comes from A first time animation studio like Locksmith Animation that has a lot of shoes to fill, uh, big shoes to fill, not only for being owned by Disney, but it's also coming after Blue Sky Studios, who released some good animated films in and of themselves. If the animated films themselves weren't great story wise, they at least were very good in animation style. And Ron's Gone Wrong is off to a good start, but I give Ron's Gone Wrong my rating of a checkout because I don't think it really had that X factor in terms of its story. And maybe it was lacking a little bit of poignancy to make this a truly memorable film, but I did enjoy it for what it was worth. I just thought it could have been a little less predictable in story, but I did like how it tied into the drawbacks of the social media world in which we live, particularly its effect on young people, without being too sad or without being too inaccessible to uh, young people who are inevitably going to see this film. So I do think Ron's Gone Wrong is worth watching. It's just not great. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is The Last Duel. This is a historical drama that is apparently based on, or at least inspired by, a true story. But it is based on a 2004 book of the same name by Eric Yeager. And it is about the last, excuse me, the last officially recognized. Judicial duel fought in France. It tells the story of the December 29th, 1386. Yeah, back that far, trial by combat, i.e., duel, in which the Norman knight Jean de Carroges dueled Squire Jacques Legris. And in this film, Jean de Carroges is uh, played by Matt Damon, and Jacques Legris is is played by Adam Driver. And Carroge had accused Legree of raping his wife, Marguerite de Carroge, um, the previous January. So he'd gone to King Charles VI, seeking an appeal to the sedition handed down by Count Pierre de Alacone, who is played in this movie by Ben Affleck. And the wife... Um, uh, what's her? Uh, I just said her name. Uh, Marguerite de Caro is played in this film by Jodie Cormer. And Jodie Cormer is a young actress. She's only uh, 28 years old. She is a British actress and she is probably better known to uh, modern, uh, rather American audiences for playing the dual role of Millie Rusk and Molotov Girl in the recent Ryan Reynolds-released Free Guy, which was an okay film. But she's had extensive experience acting in many uh, BBC series, including Dr. Foster, 13, and uh, Help, amongst other um, movies and uh, TV shows. But this is probably her breakout role, because... The movie Free Guy wasn't great, but when you are not even thirty and you're sharing the screen with such esteemed actors as Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and Ben Affleck, sometimes, uh, sometimes he's esteemed. Um, that that's a lot to do, but this movie is very gruesome in a lot of scenes, and not just the violent war scenes, including the last duel that takes place at the very end. But there's also a scene that deals with the allegation that Adam Dr- Adam Driver's character, Jacques Legree, raped Marguerite de Carroge. And the trial scene is actually reminiscent of the celebrated Akira Kurosawa film, Rashomon, in that not only does it detail a trial, but it also details varying accounts of what actually happened. So in the end, you're not exactly sure what happened, but it's but it deals with not only the gruesomeness of the fight, the literal fight to the finish at the end here, but also about the malleability of human memory. So much to the point that you're not really sure whom to believe by the time This movie ends. And what I also liked about the film is at first, it seemed like Matt Damon was the villain because he is a brave knight. Yes, but he's also very hot tempered and jealous. And you see Adam Driver's character is the more reserved and more reasonable of the two, even though the two of them are French soldiers who are fighting for the same uh, count and fighting for the same cause. You you see it as a very Cain and Abel type of fight, but by the end, or near the end, when you see what actually caused the last duel, you begin to question who's right and who's wrong. And I'm not going to tell you who's right or who's wrong by the end of this, but I will tell you that Matt Damon and Adam Driver do a great job playing rivals, no matter who's right or who's wrong. And I did like the scenes both between Jodie Cormer and Matt Damon as they are getting married and and settling down. And also the scenes between Adam Driver and Cormer when they are both, A, engaging in a bit of intellectual flirtation, and B, when Adam Driver's character starts to develop more lust. So, you have Adam Driver and Matt Damon's characters who are in, engaged with different biblical deadly sins, but they both erode both their character and their reputation. And I find that fascinating. Ben Affleck, by the way, plays the Count P- uh, Pierre uh, de Alicone, who has. So very tough acts to follow with Matt Damon, Adam Driver, and even Jodie Cormer, who has less living experience as well as acting experience as uh, her fellow lead actors here. And Ben Affleck in this film plays a cad. And to Ben Affleck's credit, he plays a cad very well. Again, Ben Affleck's... um, acting experience has been somewhat hit or miss. And before he started directing films, I would say that Ben Affleck is always good in a movie when it's either A, directed by Kevin Smith, B, and or co-starring or featuring a cameo appearance by Matt Damon. And when Ben Affleck started directing, I added C to that, which is when Ben Affleck is directing Himself. Although Ben Affleck, as a director, I think he's directed more bad movies than good. I mean, when he directed Gone Baby Gone, The Town, and Argo, all three of those films were excellent. His follow up to that, though, was not so good. He had the makings of a great film, but he chose to be the lead in that movie himself. And while it worked for him in The Town and Argo, it didn't work very well for him in this film. But it's just something about either <clears throat> Matt Damon and or Kevin Smith's influence where Ben Affleck is able to get the best out of his character and stay focused. And that's ironic considering that even though Matt Damon and Ben Affleck are in this movie, unlike movies like Good Will Hunting and Dogma, um, they don't share many scenes together here. Uh, Matt Damon uh, probably occupies the most screen time with Adam um, driver being a very close second, but Ben Affleck here is playing a cad. He's playing a, uh, arrogant womanizing, uh, person who actually, uh, very much like, uh, John Slattery playing, uh, Roger Cooper in, um, mad men. He's a cad, but he's also very funny and also provides some very good comic relief. In fact, there's one scene where, Ben Affleck's character is in the middle of an orgy and Adam driver comes in to present him with some serious news. And it's very funny how that scene plays out because it's very unusual to inform somebody about something, um, (laughs) serious when he's having sex with four other women, which he's literally doing in this scene. So, The Last Duel is a lot of great hits and very few misses, and this was directed by Ridley Scott, who also uh, wrote the screenplay to the uh, film, and it is uh, the first uh, film that he has directed since... um, the movie All the Money in the World back in 2017. But to give you an idea about how productive Ridley Scott is, The Last Duel is one out of two films that are re- they're going to be released this year by uh, directed by Ridley Scott. The other one is House of Gucci, which we're going to hear a lot more about in a couple of months after it it comes out. But... This is a great, I think, a a good... I think even a great comeback film for Ridley Scott. I love just about everything about it. The four principal actors in it acted incredibly well. There was some great set design, some amazing costuming, and this movie takes its influences, at least I assume it takes some influences, from all the right movies and incorporates it very well. And Ridley Scott also takes his... um, knack for action, which he brought to such films as Blade Runner and Gladiator, and incorporates into this film very well. So I was very pleasantly surprised by The Last Duel. I thought everyone did a great job, and it is also a knockout in my book. It is, as I said, tells a great story. It's very well acted. The costumes, the set design, and the violence are enough to not have anyone take their eyes off the screen, even if you are squeamish. I wish I had seen The Last Duel on the weekend that it came out. I just didn't have time, but I'm very glad I circled around to reviewing it now because it is certainly a great film. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies I have to review for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is what's coming up next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters for the week of October 25th through 29th, 2021. It's hard to believe that this year is i more than three quarters of the way over, but that's what we're dealing with here. So I'm going to start with the movies that are being released into theaters, and I might get into the movies that are being released on streaming if I have time, but I can't guarantee whether or not I do have time. So the biggest movie that looks like it's going to be released in theaters or subject to be released in theaters on October 29th is a movie that's called 13 Minutes and 13 Minutes is a film about four families in a heartland town are tested in a single day when a tornado hits, forcing paths to cross and redefining the meaning of survival. This sounds like a faith-based film, and there are some good faith-based films out there, but this movie stars actually a bunch of uh, actors we haven't heard from in a while. There's Thora Birch, who stars in this film. Amy Smart co stars, as well as Ann H., Paz Vega, uh, and Peter Fascinelli. Oh, Trace Atkins also co stars in this film. Uh, so you know it's a faith based film when Trace Atkins is in it. Although not all the films in which he's acted have been faith based. But <laughs> given what I know about Trace Atkins, yeah, it's probably faith based. But either way, It sounds like a good film, and Thora Birch and Amy Smart are actors that I haven't seen in quite some time. But 13 Minutes is a film that I may review for you. I don't know for sure, but I'll let you know what I think on next week's show if I do. The next movie that's going to be, that's subject to being released in theaters, is one that's called A Mouthful of Air. And A Mouthful of Air stars Amanda Seyfried as a woman by the name of Julie Davis who writes best-selling children's books about unlocking your fears, but has yet to unlock her own. And when her daughter is born, the tra- that trauma is brought to the fore, and with it, a crushing battle to survive. This might be a faith-based film, I don't know. But it stars Amanda Seyfried as I said, Britt Robertson, Jennifer Carpenter, Finn Wittrock, Paul Giamatti, and Amy Irving, amongst other actors. A lot of good actors in here. It is directed and, and written by Amy Kopelman. And Amy Kopelman is a director who I'm not familiar with, actually. And among the films that she has written and directed include a film that's called I Smile Back, And that is a film which she actually wrote. She didn't actually direct it according to IMDb. So this is her actually directorial debut, not just her feature film directorial debut. So this is a film I will seek out. I will try to see it and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. The next movie that is subject to be released in theaters is one that is called Antlers. Antlers. And Antlers is a horror film that takes place in an isolated Oregon town, and it is about a middle school teacher and her sheriff brother who become embroiled with her enigmatic student whose dark secrets lead to terrifying encounters with a legendary ancestral creature who came before them. Given the title of this movie, I presume that this creature... Uh, had antlers on uh, him. I assume it's a a male demon, but who knows. This movie is directed by Scott Cooper and stars Cary Russell, Jesse Plemons. (coughs) Excuse me. Hang on. (coughs) The movie stars Cary Russell, Jesse Plemons, Graham Greene, Rory Cochran, and Amy Madigan, amongst other actors. So a lot of really good actors there. And this is a movie I probably will see. And when I do, I'll let you know what I think on the next show. Another movie that is subject to be released in theaters nationwide is a movie that's called Last Night in Soho. I think this movie was actually supposed to be released months ago because I do remember covering this film on my What's Coming Up Next segment on a previous episode. But this is a movie that is uh, about an aspiring fashion designer who is mysteriously able to enter the 1960s when she encounters a dazzling wannabe singer, but the glamour is not all it appears to be, and the dreams of the past start to crack and splinter into something darker. This movie is directed by Edgar Wright, and truth be told, I have not seen a movie that is directed by Edgar Wright that I have not immediately forgotten afterwards. I don't know if I've loved all his movies that he's directed, but I've loved most of them, uh, especially ones like Shaun of the Dead and Hot Fuzz, as well as movies that didn't do as well financially, like Scott Pilgrim vs. The World. So I am very eager and willing to see this one. The star of the movie is Thomason McKenzie, who is a New Zealand actress who has acted in such films as Leave No Trace and Jojo Rabbit. So... She's very familiar, at least um, facially, to uh, uh, American audiences. Anya Taylor-Joy also co-stars in this film, and she's probably more familiar than Thomas and Mackenzie, but both of them are excellent actresses. You also have Matt Smith acting in this film, and that's just the extent of the actors that I know personally. But this sounds like a very intriguing film, and when I see it, I'll let you know what I think on the next show. Another movie that is uh, subject to be released in theaters is one that's called "My Hero Academia: World Heroes Mission." This is an animated one, which may or may not be re- released in a theater near you, even if it's an art house film. But it it, it looks like it comes out of Asia somewhere, and it is a film that deals with a cult of terrorists who ruin a city by releasing a toxin that causes people's abilities to spiral out of of control. And when this happens, Japan's greatest heroes spread around the world and attempt to track down the mastermind and put him to justice. This sounds like a lot of comic book um, movies, not just MCU films, but I'd be willing to give this film the benefit of the of the doubt and the actors that I'm seeing who are acting in this film or providing their voices are mostly Japanese actors, which leads me to believe that there are probably different actors who are providing the voices in the English version. But the director of this film is Kenji Nagasaki, who of course is a native of Japan and he has directed several other animated films before this. And I guess that My Hero Academia is an anime series. I haven't seen it and I'm not quite familiar with it. But if you're a fan of My Hero Academia, check this movie out if you like. It's just probably a movie that I won't check out. Not because I avoid these kind of films. Excuse me for just a second. (coughs) Oh boy. That is uh, what you get when you're uh, doing a a show live. But anyway, um, My Hero Academia, World Heroes Mission. It's subject to be released in theaters in this country. I don't know if it's going to be, but it's probably a film I won't see. Another film that is subject to be released in theaters, and it's very obvious what this film is capitalizing upon, at least in terms of its theme, is a movie that's called Planet Dune. Yep. Is it based on the novel by Frank Herbert? Well, let's see. Here's the synopsis. A crew on a mission to rescue a marooned base on a desert planet turns deadly when the crew finds themselves hunted and attacked by the planet's apex predators, giant sandworms. My guess is that this film is based on, or I think loosely based on Dune, but not directly Uh, based on it. It stars Sean Young, who um, we haven't heard from in a while. Actually, she made a cameo appearance in the movie Blade Runner 2049, which is directed by Denis Villeneuve, who also directed the most recent incantation of Dune. So how's that for Six Degrees of Separation? But the movie also stars Emily Killian, Tammy Klein, Clark Moore... Uh, Sharon Desiree, Sienna Farrell, and other actors, of which Sean Young is the only actor that I know here. It's directed by Glenn Campbell, not the country singer Glenn Campbell, that, that Glenn Campbell is dead, and Tammy Klein. But my guess is that this is just a movie about predatory sandworms, but it's not actually based on the novel by Frank Herbert. So it's probably a movie I will not see. But I do have to admit, I'm very curious about it. And the last movie that is subject to be released in theaters, at least uh, in a limited release, is a movie that's called The Souvenir Part 2. This is a movie that stars, uh, if the damn internet can catch up with me here, Tilda Swinton, actually. As well as uh, Honor Swinton by catch up, please. Burn, excuse me. Honor Swinton Burn. I assume that's Tilda Swinton's daughter, and some of the other actors in this film I haven't heard of. But it's it's unlikely that I'll see this film because I haven't seen the Souvenir Part One. So. It here's a synopsis. In the aftermath of her tumultuous relationship, Julie begins to untangle her fraught love for him in making her a graduation film, sorting fact from his elaborately constructed fiction. So I don't know who him is, but apparently it's the antagonist in this movie, but I don't know exactly what's going on here, but it sounds like this is a passion project for Tilda Swinton who plays the mother of the protagonist in this film. It is directed and written by Joanna Hogg, who is a British director who directed the original film, The Souvenir, from 2019. And this film, Souvenir, also starred... uh, It actually featured an appearance by Neil Young and also, uh, also starred... Honor Swinton Byrne, as well as uh, Tilda Swinton here. There's an actor named Tom Burke, to whom I'm probably no relation. And that's just about it in terms of... Oh, there's also a New Zealand uh, native actor named Richard ayode who has been in some movies and TV shows I've seen. But I've not actually seen The, the Souvenir... At least, not as far as I know. Um, if I've seen it, I've probably forgotten about it. But it's about a young film student in the early 1980s who becomes romantically involved with a complicated and untrustworthy man. This is... It sounds familiar. But I don't think... If I have seen it, it's a film I've actually forgotten. Um... But it, actually, Joanna Hogg also wrote and directed this, this film and based the film on real-life experiences while attending film school in London in the early 1980s, and she became friends with Tilda Swinton. So it's more of a passion project for Joanna Hogg than it was for Tilda Swinton, but when you have Tilda Swinton in the film, that is a very valuable asset. But it's been so long since I've seen The Souvenir. I've forgotten a lot of it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to see The Souvenir Part 2. But if it comes on my radar, I might see it. And I'll let you know what I think. Well, that's all the time I have for this episode of Words on Film. I always love talking about movies, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please subscribe and rate the show and leave comments if you can. I would love to get your feedback, even if it's more criticism than praise. This has been Words on Film. I'm Dan Burke. And until my next episode, I'll see you at the movies.